Good morning. It is a joy and an honor to be here delivering the W.C. Dobbs Endowed lecture, lecture from the pulpit at Truett Seminary. For an Oklahoma boy who was his church's mission project every summer at Falls Creek Baptist Assembly, this feels a little bit like being a little leaguer called up to pitch off the mound in Yankee Stadium. So I would like to thank Brian Brewer and the Lectures Committee for extending the invitation and to express my thanks to you, the faculty and students of Truett Seminary, for the essential work you do and will do in the world. Thank you for allowing me this morning to be a tiny part of that. I bring greetings this morning from your colleagues in the Baylor Department of English across campus and from your brothers and sisters in Christ at St. David's Episcopal Church in Austin, where I am privileged to serve. I'd like to begin my lecture with two observations, which you may or may not need to hear, but I feel led to say. Uh, I may be preaching to the choir, but I have been known to do that, and the choir needs a good sermon just like everybody else. First, you will have noted, I think, the topic, the title of my offering this morning. Once past that catchy opening phrase, from Homer to the Hunger Games, intended to suggest that for 3,000 years people have been looking to story to help them understand themselves, their communities, their world, and their relationship with the divine. You find the meat of the lecture, imaginative reading for preaching, teaching, and formation. I have stolen that last almost whole hog from the title of the Jan term reading retreat that my dear friend Hewlett Glower leads each year and that I have sometimes been privileged to co-teach and co-pastor alongside of him. In that week-long retreat, as many of you know, we read and discuss novels, poems, spiritual autobiographies, and films with an attention to what their stories can teach us about ourselves and about God and with an eye for what preachers can learn from the artistic forms themselves. That week in January has been a time of great personal growth for me as a writer, a preacher, teacher, and pastor, and I want to acknowledge that influence on today's lecture. Thank you, Hewlett. Secondly, my lecture today assumes that God continues to move in the world, that revelation did not end when they plunked down revelation at the end of the New Testament, and that while the human race may be fallen, the world still offers an ongoing testimony of beauty and truth that leads us back toward the author of beauty and truth. To argue, as I will today, that Christians ought to read novels and stories as a part of their journey argues for a deeply incarnational theology that understands that God has not deserted this world for the heavenly realms, but continues to operate in creation. The Church Fathers believed that earthly beauty was a continuing sign of the divine. Augustine writes near the end of the Confessions that in his own life, beauty was evidence of and a spur toward God, even when he himself was yet far from God. John Calvin writes so often and so beautifully on beauty in the Institutes of Christian Religion that you almost forget that he is John Calvin. And the scriptures are full of passages that invite us to consider how God is moving, visibly present in the world, in our communities and in our lives, even when we are unaware of it. So it is that I offer one of these passages from Psalm 19 as the cornerstone of my lecture this morning. Psalm 19 speaks of God's continuing revelation. It is also a prayer of gratitude 
for that revelation and a plea for assistance in interpreting that revelation for this present time. May we offer these verses as our prayer this morning. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Three years ago, I was riding in Wales, the country, not the seagoing mammal. When the final, I have to explain that sometimes. Oh, you do? Okay. When the final Harry Potter film came out. One day, down in London, I dropped by to see the tent city that had risen up in Trafalgar Square. Some of you may remember the images of it on uh, the BBC or on uh, the news channels. People had traveled there from all over the world literally all over the world, to camp out in Trafalgar Square for the red carpet movie premiere. It was just one of many indicators of interest in what everyone assumed would be the last great public burst of Harry Potter fandom. And as a Harry Potter expert, I found myself doing dozens of interviews, talking with everyone from the New York Times to BBC Radio to Men's Health. Now, with the exception of Men's Health, who had an abnormal curiosity about how I achieved my washboard abs, (laughs) the one question all of them were asking me was this, why? Why is this such a big deal? Why are so many people exercised about the end of Harry Potter? It is a big deal, I told them, for two reasons. First, this, the Harry Potter saga in fiction, in film, is the most popular fictional story in the history of history. Only the Bible, which is full of stories I don't think of as fiction, and Chairman Mao's Little Red Book have sold more copies. And I said, this fantastically popular story is coming to a sort of public end, since it's the last time we know of when people will be able to interact in a public fashion with this most beloved story. And so I think it's inspiring what amounts to simultaneous public celebration and public mourning. And second, I said, this celebration and mourning is emerging because the Harry Potter story is a story that has shaped almost everyone who has read or seen it. My son Chandler, my students here at Baylor, millions of children and young adults and older adults around the world 
many of you here this morning, are to some degree who you are because of Harry Potter. Sure, your parents had their influence, your wisdom or faith tradition mattered. But when I asked the students in my Harry Potter class here at Baylor why they fought tooth and nail to get into it, what they tell me is this. The story of Harry Potter taught me to be human. It taught me about love, courage, and generosity. It taught me about good and evil. It taught me what it means to belong to a community. It taught me about the danger of fear and the allure of power. It taught me, even, how to be a better Christian. I'm not surprised by these statements. This is what great stories do and have always done. They shape us. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen or even participated in one of the most recent trends on Facebook, where someone challenges you to list the 10 books that have most influenced your life. Could I see some hands? How many of you have seen that or participated in it? Now, the numbers crunchers at Facebook ran a meta-analysis of these posts a couple of weeks ago and discovered the works that users most often cited as having transformed them. It's fascinating data. Number one were the Harry Potter novels. To Kill a Mockingbird was second. The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Pride and Prejudice, and The Hunger Games were all in the top ten. The Bible, incidentally, made the list as well at number six. Now, we could groan about dropping rates of biblical literacy We could offer up a Jeremiah sermon about how people have fallen away from the true faith. We could argue that the Bible ought to be the top book on every person's list. Or we could reflect. And we could carry away what may be the most important lesson of the Facebook study for people who preach, who teach, who do pastoral care, who are involved in any way in the business of transformation. These stories and many others, have changed people's lives. The Austin writer Tim O'Brien says in The Things They Carried, but this too is true. Stories can save us. As he and such Christian writers as C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, and Madeline Lengel have noted, Something far more important than entertainment is happening in great stories. Lewis remarked that a story's plot is merely the net in which the important and potentially life-changing things are caught. So, it seems to me if there are ways we can connect others to what gets caught in that net, ways we can connect our faith teachings with them, ways we ourselves can learn from and be changed by them, it behooves us to do so. Now, it just so happens that J.K. Rowling, the author of those Harry Potter novels, is a professing Christian. She is not, as some of our brothers and sisters have argued, a witch. I love saying that. She is a practicing member of the Church of Scotland, 
a professed fan of the Narnia books. She said in interviews for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first novel in the series, that she had modeled Harry Potter's story after the shape of the gospel narrative. And she told MTV, of all things, that the two Bible verses she embedded in the final book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, are the thematic core of the entire series. J.K. Rowling is one of those Christian storytellers I like to call a stealth Christian. It's the sort of thing my son Chandler and I will be listening to the radio and he will say, that was kind of Jesus-y. <laughs> so Rowling might be the kind of literary artist of whom N.T. Wright was speaking when he said, Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the only authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were in already. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. All of that from N.T. Wright. I don't want to claim credit for any of those great words. But notice that while he does speak of genuine Christian storytelling, at the end of that long passage, he suggests that great storytellers do not have to be professing Christians to change lives. I have talked often about the theological insights on grace to be found in the movie Pulp Fiction. Although I do not think Quentin Tarantino is much of a professing anything. Barbara Kingsolver's The Poisonwood Bible remains one of the most thought-provoking novels I know about Christian evangelism. Even though Kingsolver herself rejected Christianity because of the powerfully negative examples of evangelism she witnessed during her childhood in the Congo. And the stories of the pre-Christian Greek poet Homer tell us much about those things that we extol in our Christian faith and practice. In the Iliad, for example, Homer examines human thinking about death and the afterlife. He presents an indictment of the radical individualism that remains dangerously seductive for us today. And he offers powerful explorations of courage, justice, and mercy as we discover in this scene from near the climax of the Iliad. Achilles, the furious Greek warrior, has slain the Trojan champion Hector, defiled his corpse, and refused to allow his body to be buried. Hector's father, King Priam, guided by the gods, travels through the Greek lines to Achilles in the night, although King Priam's wife wails that Achilles will kill him too savage and wayward as the man is. What follows is one of the most powerful moments in classical literature or in any literature. 
Homer tells us that in this culture in which a man was defined by his strength of arms, by his undying enmity toward his enemies, Priam, the great king of Troy, passed by the others, knelt down, took in his arms Achilles' knees, and kissed the hands of wrath that killed his sons. Priam's humbling of himself melts the heart of the fierce warrior. Achilles agrees to release Hector's body. In fact, he orders his retainers to clean the body, anoint it with oil, and dress it in kingly garb. He then offers Priam the hospitality of his pavilion and even comes to a moment of communion with this king whose kingdom he has come to throw down. Ah, sad and old, trouble and pain you've borne and bear a plenty. Far from my country, I sit at Troy to grieve you and your children. So, Rowling and Homer, Christian and non-Christian, yet both of them telling stories that can move and shape us. What about writers who are in the unknown category? We Christians are fond of debating whether we can claim someone or not. I can't tell you how many students have sat in my office debating you too over the years. Well, they're not Christian now because Bono wears sunglasses. We debate it as though that distinction matters for anything more than our own satisfaction. I don't think it does. I think instead of Suzanne Collins and her Hunger Games saga, I read someone somewhere on the interwebs saying that Suzanne Collins is a Roman Catholic. Certainly her story uses bread as a sacramental symbol, and it makes Peta, one of the Christ figures in the story, a baker of all things. The saga itself is a powerful meditation on the spiritual costs of violence and a prophetic illustration of the injustice of any society with great gaps between rich and poor. Collins clearly has a sense of the centrality of sacrifice and of community. But because she is famously reclusive and because no one seems to have asked her that question, I couldn't tell you if the author of The Hunger Games is Christian. Maybe she is. Maybe she isn't. And again, it doesn't seem to matter in the context of our conversation today. Non-Christian authors and artists share with Christian authors and artists the responsibility to say something true and to create something beautiful. Even though their art may not be informed by a working faith, their work can still offer us something powerful and potentially transformational. As William Faulkner said in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, and we're wondering about William Faulkner, they buried him in an Episcopal churchyard. Maybe we can claim him. All great writing trades in the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truths lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed. Love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Great artists play in a sandbox of the universal truths. And I think that's probably true of all all great artists. 
The new U2 album, Songs of Innocence, features a song about Bono's first encounter with the shaggy-haired punk band The Ramones. You may have actually seen this in endless Apple commercials where he sings, I woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred, heard a song that made some sense out of the world. Everything I ever lost now had been returned. The most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. For Bono, one of the world's best-known Christians, the Ramones were somehow mediating grace and beauty and helping him to make some shaggy-haired sense out of the world. In some sense, the Ramones were offering him an experience of truth with a capital T. We find something like this musical recognition in Augustine's argument from On Christian Doctrine. Wherever we find truth, it is the Lord's. This realization offers a theological explanation, by the way, for why Pulp Fiction offered me a very real experience of God's grace. Why that scene from the Iliad, although it comes from a pagan who lived 800 years before Christ, nonetheless can enlarge us. Augustine thought deeply about his attraction to pagan culture. And alongside his warnings, he offers us an encouragement to be aware of how God might be using all things to God's greater good. Whatever draws us closer to God and increases us in love of our neighbor, Augustine tells us, must come from God. And in the Confessions, he offers up this prayer of thanks for the products of human hands. O oh my God, my glory, for these things too I offer you a hymn of thanksgiving. I make a sacrifice of praise to him who sanctifies me for the beauty which flows through men's minds into their skillful hands comes from that beauty which is above their souls and for which my soul sighs all day and night. All of this, the theological background, my own personal experience with works that mediated God for me even when I was far from God, makes me tend to avoid what many of us who work at the intersection of faith and culture think of as a false divide between faith and culture. Some pagan art is edifying. Some Christian art is soul-killing. Think back to Faulkner's Nobel speech, the desire of the artist to tell the truth about the human condition and to do so beautifully and with an awareness of the possibility of grace should be the thing that truly matters. Permit me, if you will, a personal example of this false divide from my other life as a novelist. My first novel, Free Bird, was written before I formally returned to faith, written during one of the darkest times of my life. Please be assured that I did not set out to write a Christian novel. Yet Freebird is a work that is marked by grace, love, and forgiveness, and it culminates, strangely enough, in a scene of confession to a Catholic priest, no less. Freebird is no less Christian, strangely enough, than The Prodigal, the novel I wrote last year with Brennan Manning. Even though I was by then a seminary-trained preacher, writing a novel that retells the, prodigal, the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, 
that revolves around Manning's classic themes of grace, love, and forgiveness that was published by one of the world's largest Christian publishers. If either of those novels succeeds and is worth reading by Christians in the pews or in the pulpit, permit me to suggest that maybe they are, (laughs) it would be because both of them tell the truth. Both of them engender compassion. Both of them encourage steadfastness. And both of them suggest that we are meant to be a part of something larger than ourselves. It is not because one is consciously Christian and the other isn't. Irenaeus wrote, The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And the life of humans consists in beholding God. Great stories may make us more fully alive. They may help us to behold the divine. And we could preach from great stories and teach them as works that we know personally to be soul-filling. They may even allow us to drop breadcrumbs leading back to our tradition. They may. Clearly, I believe in the power of great stories to shape and move us. But I don't believe that every story does, or will, affect us in those ways. You should be able to discern which works are drawing you closer to God and to your neighbor, and which are not. And it's important to acknowledge that our opinions on what fits into which category may differ. Not all of you, perhaps, find the final scene of Pulp Fiction as soul-shaking and soul-shaping as I did. And as I mentioned, many people have called my Freebird a Christian novel. But Irene, my 94-year-old Assembly of God grandmother, one of the most devout Christians I have ever known, got to the first cuss word in the novel and threw Freebird across her living room. (laughs) Language or violence or a pervasive spirit of nihilism may make us, too, incapable of consuming stories that others have found meaningful. As well-written and humanly interesting as I have found the stories told on TV in Mad Men and Breaking Bad, for example, I felt myself diminished after watching them. It's not, by the way, that I require stories to be chirpingly cheerful, that they end happily, This is, it seems to me, the great flaw of much so-called Christian fiction. I don't believe that language, violence, or the brokenness of characters precludes a story from offering wisdom and inspiration. In fact, Amy Tan, the great novelist, said last night here at Baylor that the most interesting characters are always the most flawed. It is, she said, and I believe this as a writer, almost impossible to write about a truly good person. So, works that reveal the face of evil, or that shed light on human venality, or explain our impulse toward violence, or the attraction of any of those false desires that seek to replace God with tiny and imperfect substitutes might be edifying to us. Light can shine powerfully in darkened rooms. I have always loved Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises. And one of the reasons that I love it is because it shows us what lostness looks like. 
So I imagine that any story that increased my sympathy for the brokenness that many of us endure could also have a pastoral value. But I'll confess, person to person, I had to put those TV series I mentioned away from me because I learned their lessons quickly. And afterward, I could not locate a bright center in either of those stories that compelled my ongoing interest. So, as we do our discernment with stories, I suggest we go back to that Augustinian model I extolled above. Where Breaking Bad was concerned, I did not feel increased in my love of God or of my neighbor. I felt darker rather than lighter. You might have a different experience or even need that story in a way that clearly I did not. The Spirit moves in mysterious ways. You will have to discern for yourself and for your own preaching and teaching. Now, since I am supposed to be offering some applied Christianity in this lecture, I'd like to close with this last question. How might we read stories in such a way that we can find their compelling lessons, savor them for ourselves, and offer them to others? Well, let me tell you first how we should not proceed. And many of these prescriptions will be familiar to you already from your Bible and preaching classes. It is possible to enter the enterprise of reading determined to read badly. In search of sermon examples instead of narrative wisdom. I don't care how desperate you are for material, how late on Saturday night it might be. That is not how we read. We need to come to a work without expectations so far as we are able. When we come to a story with our hermeneutical filters in place, we will find what we hope to find. But we may miss the pearl of great price that should have been our goal. A classic example of proof texting in search of a sermon and of bad hermeneutical filters actually comes from responses to Harry Potter. At the end of the first novel and the first film, you may recall that a character says something that many people reading badly, or let's tell the truth, not actually reading the story at all, fixed on as a religious reason to abhor Harry Potter. The quotation is, There is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Well, there you go. What could be more ungodly, those people asked. What further evidence do you need that reading Harry Potter puts your kid on the fast track to hell? Well, I see some of you nodding. The trouble is that the character who says these words in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is the villain. Yes, this is an evil sentiment, but the entire novel, properly read, places itself in opposition to these words. The main characters of the series risk their lives over and over again in the service of what is right. They offer themselves sacrificially for their community. They renounce power to prove that good and evil are real. Another example of such selective misreading comes from a recent speaking engagement 
when I was asked to talk about the Hunger Games saga at a university in Detroit. And let me tell you, this story of haves and have-nots takes on a greater resonance in a city which is being bulldozed down around you. In my lecture, I talked about the Hunger Games and its stance against war and violence. During the question time, after a local faculty member had made one of those interminable statements disguised as a question, <laughs> a kind of thing intended to demonstrate that she should actually have delivered my lecture instead of me, I thought that was the worst it was going to be. And then a young man from Iraq took the micro uh, microphone and took me to task. The Hunger Games, he said, is about children who triumph through violence. Everyone knows this is how Americans see the world, as conquerors. He spoke of how we had destroyed his country. And he said to my face that he could not understand how I could find any spiritual value in a story that simply justified American violence. As gently as I could, because I understood that he had very good reasons for his hermeneutical filters, I tried to explain why this was a bad reading. I reminded him and the audience of the many instances in the Hunger Games in which violence is not romantic but horrific, of the tremendous emotional and spiritual damage violence does to Katniss, the main character. I spoke of Suzanne Collins's father, a Vietnam vet turned professor of history, who, she said in a rare interview, felt it was his responsibility to make sure that all his children had an understanding about war, about its cost, its consequences. I told him that violence in a story can be exciting, can advance the plot, can even seem to solve problems for its characters but that does not mean its author regards it as a positive thing. I am sorry for what your country has endured, I told that young man. This story is actually in solidarity with you and with all who suffer the effects of violence. It tells us that war has an inescapable effect and that that effect is soul-killing. The Hunger Games decries war and injustice. It does not celebrated. We have to identify our filters, religious, political, cultural, and personal, so that we can pay attention to the story that is actually unfolding, not just to a conveniently handy phrase or example we can seize and twist to our own purposes. Just as we do the Bible a disservice to read it in bite-sized chunks that confirm what we already believe, we do story a disservice when we treat it in such fashion. So, avoid proof texting, be aware and beware of your hermeneutical filters, and on the positive side, use the exegetical tools you have been given in this place to put a work in its cultural and literary context. Use the devotional tools you've been given to open yourself up to an awareness of delight and beauty. And maybe most importantly, from a preaching or teaching standpoint, identify the narrative. In closing, I want to suggest three wide-ranging story patterns that appear throughout great literature 
and in our Christian tradition, for which you might be watching when you read or watch or listen. Because when you find them, it's very likely that you will find a story that offers the possibility of transformation for yourself and for those you serve. We might call our first archetypal story Lost, as J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof titled their TV series about a group of castaways lost in every way that a human being can be lost. Or we could call it The Prodigal Comes Home, in honor of Jesus' story of one who was lost and now is found. We find it in Homer's The Odyssey, in the biblical story of the Exodus, in the Grail quest in Arthurian legend, the impulses in Harry Potter and in the Hunger Games to find a place of safety and refuge. We could think of the slaves and former slaves in Toni Morrison's Beloved, seeking a place where they can live free of fear, or of the character of Jack Bowton, Marilyn Robinson's lost and broken prodigal in the novel Gilead. We might condense the spiritual wisdom caught in the net of this storyline in this way. The task of our life is to find our way back home and to belong there once we arrive. It makes me think of the beautiful idea in T.S. Eliot's poem, Little Gidding, that someday we will arrive at the place where we began and know it for the first time. The second archetypal story for which you might watch is the sacrificial hero. We see it in the Hunger Games, when Katniss volunteers to replace her younger sister in the arena, even though it means her almost certain death. We see it in the Iliad, when Priam risks certain death to ask for his son's body. We find the sacrificial hero in the stories of our faith, Moses, Jesus, Paul, Martin Luther King, the long roll call of martyrs witnessing to the reality of God's movement in the world. We see it in the title character's actions in John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany, and in Shusako Endo's novel Silence, where the figure of Jesus tells a character that he became incarnate to be trampled beneath the feet of men. In a few words, we could summarize the spiritual wisdom of this story as, nobility of spirit means recognizing that there are things larger than ourselves and our own desires. It's Humphrey Bogart's Rick at the end of Casablanca. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. It's Bono writing the central words in the song one, we get to carry each other. Bono offers the bridge to our last archetype, a countercultural but essential narrative for us radical individuals in the West, living in community. It's the gathering of those disparate warriors in the Iliad, Arthur and his table round, Jesus and the disciples, e pluribus unum. It's Jesus' discourse on life in the faithful community in Matthew, the Pauline vision of the body of Christ. It's the four houses of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, and in the Hunger Games saga, the 75th tournament where the champions come together in secret to fight for an outcome together. The central idea of this storyline might be summarized in this way. 
We are formed by those around us. We need a community to challenge, support, and nurture us. And this third story brings together all of our stories. When we find community, we come home. Where we find community, we are challenged to love and serve. In a loving community that calls us to something higher and nobler, we become our very best selves. It's not just that, as Jack says early in Lost, we've got to live together or we're going to die alone. It's that living together teaches us who we are, what we should desire, and how to live with courage and meaning. We need each other to do the work that God has given us to do in truth and beauty and for the common good, as the prayer book puts it. And stories remind us of that and of so much more. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I look forward to further conversation at lunch, and I pray God's blessings on you and on your ministry.